great to see you. Let me, I'll just introduce myself again. Um, and uh, just what I'm here to do. Um, I, I know I'm speaking to the old, what, well, let me root careful here, what I want to say, but what classified as the old guard. Now, you're not particularly old, but you're certainly the, the guard of what we understand in terms of the, the, the kind of the supportive group, the experienced group as far as marriage and relationships are concerned in the church. And I think, um, if you think about that, that's a huge responsibility and actually it's a rather small group. So um, there's quite a lot of responsibility held by this group as we move forward in the year ahead. And clearly, people cycle through HDB and they move out and they do different things. And the wisdom of what we learn here is shared and, and is passed on to other churches, which is part of our mission. But, but trying to keep the centre hot is one of the responsibilities that we have at the moment as a church. And one of the key partnerships I want to encourage you to think about is this idea of how do we keep the centre of what we do hot in order that we can actually disseminate the ministries that we're doing, that having a transformative effect on the world around us uh, and actually demonstrate that innovation and quality is happening at home. So I, I, I just, I think it's important you know, I'm not here to sort of patronize you or to give you information that you already know about. I want to enthuse you to this sense of mission and ministry that we have together. And one of the things that Nikki Gumbel particularly has been sort of trying to pass on to us as the team at the moment is this idea of, of, of building at the center in order to strengthen the products that is out there in the marketplace. And obviously, if you're involved in business, if, if the host of an organization, if the center of a company isn't producing quality goods, if the outlying organizations that are in the distribution network are trying to then put those things out there, everyone's looking back at the center and saying this isn't very good, then there's not a lot to sell, there's not a lot to share. And what we have is essentially brilliant stuff at the center. But the challenge of the work that we do in relationships is what are the measurables? Now, everyone's relationship is different and the challenges facing relationships today are pretty extreme. So the work that we have to do together is is really, really important if we're going to continue to say, look, this has a transformative effect on your life and we believe in the church and we believe in this basis of faith, we believe in Alpha and something to share. So it's a big, it's a big deal. Um, I'm pastoral chaplain to HDB, which is a totally new role and everyone's still working out what on earth that means. Um, previous to this, I was, I've been an ordained priest now for uh, nearly 11 years uh, and I was... Uh, curate and then associate vicar at St Mary's, Bryanston Square. Then I led my own church in Harrow called St Peter's West Harrow and we specialise in, in sort of emotional health and well-being and that's my other sort of area of expertise is, is um, in, in, in the world of mental and emotional health. Now it's always very tricky when you start talking about mental and emotional health because immediately a lot of people think this isn't relevant to me. Um, and I work with a consultant psychiatrist and we work in the sort of more extreme end of serious and enduring mental health. Uh, and I work with a clinical psychologist who's sort of the middle ground. And, and I look at the holistic impact. So I look at all the areas of particularly the work of the emotions in life in general. And we see all of this as a spectrum. So we all have an emotional health issue in the same way as we have a physical health issue. And I would argue that the rubber hits the road in relationships, as you all know is true, as you've counseled people and supported couples over the last few years, that actually where there are problems in the emotions, they are massively exacerbated by close proximity to someone who knows you better than you know yourself. And, um, and therefore, the work that we do in supporting marriages is also about um, really uh, qualifying and translating emotional language between people 
and I think that's something that I want to kind of bring to the table tonight. The, the purpose of, of what we're going to share is not that you all become, if you like, experts in this area, but that maybe some of the ideas and concepts that I bring to the table, you go, ah, yes, I've seen that, now I've got a language for that, and actually I have an idea about how I might be able to diffuse or support someone who's facing that kind of challenge. Hopefully also there'll be lots of aha moments for you individually where you're saying, yes, I've seen that in myself, or I've seen that in my wife or in my husband, and actually we've got some new tools now to try out these hypotheses for ourselves. And also there'll be some exercises where we can engage in some of these ideas together. So I want, I'm, I'm wanting to demonstrate respect for you all at this juncture, just so you know that you know, this is very subjective work in some ways. You've all got a huge level of expertise. Um, we've all in this room, I think, been married more than 10 years. Uh, oh, not quite. Absolutely. You're very well on it. Um, but, you know, we're all experienced in marriage. And if you're experienced in marriage, you're experienced in conflict and you're experienced in anger. So we're going to, um, we're going to draw some of those uh, ideas. And the first section just really is just answering uh, the simple question. You know, what, what anger actually looks like? What is anger? And, um, I, I want to, um, kind of get to grips with this idea of, of anger as a conceptual experience is something that we can kind of package and identify, but something that we can also feel. It's an emotional expression of frustration or injustice. So it's something that gives voice to something else. I'm going to make all these slides available to you, by the way, so you don't need to note anything down. And this whole talk's going to be recorded as well, so you don't even need to take notes if you want to make sure you've checked it back at a later stage. Just feel completely relaxed. So I, I want to bring about first this idea about counter-reaction, reactions and counter-reactions. But anger, you could argue, is a counter-reaction to a locus of provocation. So every time, so when your husband's done something wrong uh, this weekend, you can say, I'm just about to have a counter-reaction to the locus of my provocation, which is currently you. Um, now we tend to react against the locus of our provocation. We should find a way to do that. Anger is the language of our counter-reaction. And anger, like all emotions, is morally neutral. And I think this is a really important point to make, particularly in the Christian context. Because unfortunately, we've got such a, um, such a stilted view of anger. And it's not one that is taught scripturally. It's not one that we find within the scriptures. We've, we find several references to anger in the Bible. But the references about anger in the Bible are often filtered in a way that they are taught. So those references to anger which are instructional are always identified as terrible. So do not be angry it seems to be the parody of the biblical teaching about anger. When in fact the biblical teaching about anger says in your anger do not sin, which is a completely different thing. Also we look at the anger of God which is unhelpfully described as the wrath of God as a way of delineating the anger of God versus the anger of man, and we see the anger of Jesus at the injustice and in cleansing the temple courts and in the two-faced nature of uh, the pharisaical uh, spirituality. So you see anger penetrating the Bible, but you see the wrath of God or the anger of God as being an essential good part of God's own nature. You see it very powerfully worked out in the person of Jesus Christ, and then you see some of Pauline instruction about how we should 
manage the emotions of anger. So it's a terribly simple and distorted reduction to suggest that anger is in itself wrong. There's nothing wrong with anger. In fact, uh, anger is the flip side of happy. So if you can be happy, you can be angry. Everyone wants to be happy, but not everyone wants to be angry. The thing is, if we can be happy, we can be angry. And if we should be happy, we should also be angry. You know, we, we, we need to recognize that, th that this is a healthy and supportive and important emotion that we need to start valuing and celebrating rather than deriding. So I'd like to encourage you to be careful in your own relationships when you say, oh, you're such an angry man, or oh, you're such an angry woman. You know, there's, some, there's greater value to this emotion than we give credit towards. And actually, uh, because uh, anger is a powerful emotion, the more hostility we show towards anger itself, the more uncontrolled our anger will be. Whereas the more we befriend the emotions to coin a, a psychological term, this befriending of the emotions, or sitting comfortably with the emotions that we carry within us, the more control we'll actually have with those emotions. So we familiarize ourselves with the emotions within us. We stop acting hostile, in a hostile manner towards the emotions that we carry within us. Actually, we have greater control of those emotions in the long term. The people who tend to lack control when it comes to anger have often uh, demonized the anger within them. And therefore, they suppress it, and then they're surprised by the power of it. It was those people who were aware of their own anger, who befriended their anger, who could sit with their own anger, often have far greater control of it. So let's think about context for a minute, because anger is essentially context-specific. Here is a statement. I felt an absolute rage within me as I ran across the road towards the man holding the girl. I launched into a verbal tirade against him and could feel my face flush red, as well as my heart race within my chest. The girl was crying and seemed very afraid. First gut reaction, appropriate anger. Was it appropriate? Hands up. Okay. Gut reaction sounds appropriate to me. Now, let's just think a minute about context. What do we think is happening within the context of this uh, testimony? What do we think is happening? So, some illustrations. No one's right or wrong, by the way. Uh, some ideas. What might be happening? Yes, John. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. Okay, excellent. Yeah, Kip, you going to say something? Okay, so he's reacting to injustice, which, which would be a, a where a biblical concept of God's good anger. God is angry at injustice. Uh, he's angry at the abuse of the widow or the orphan. His rage, his wrath, is welled up against the people for their uh, idolatry. Uh, other ideas about what might be going on? Okay, interesting. Yeah, great. You no, 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 not, no. I mean, this is just reported speech. This is interpretive, right? So we, we're looking at this and we're saying, okay, what's going on? Now imagine you're in your marriage support moment and you're hearing a testimony from one partner. Uh, they've come to you and they said, Celia, We've got real anger issues in our relationship right now. And there was this moment when da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Immediately we're thinking, oh, yes. Now I'm hearing this testimony from you. Now uh, an accord, uh, an emotional bond, if you like, between the person who's sharing the testimony and the one who's hearing the testimony is grown. And now I'm empathizing with the emotion that you're demonstrating and I'm feeling defensive on your behalf. But I haven't actually understood 
what is taking place in this particular context. Was it appropriate? Well, I wrote that particular illustration on the basis of these three ideas. Number one, woman driver berates a pedestrian for crossing the road with his daughter in an unsafe manner. Very good, Michael. Number two, man saves young girl from mystery assailant who grabs her by a bus stop. Totally justified. Appropriate anger. Number three, ex-boyfriend sees his old girlfriend in an embrace with a man outside a local nightclub. Look back at the uh, script again. I felt absolute rage within me as I ran across the road towards the man holding the girl. I launched into a verbal tirade against him and could feel my face flush red as well as my heart raced within my chest. The girl was crying and seemed very afraid. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Wouldn't you feel very afraid if you're having a romantic night out with your new boyfriend and then your ex-boyfriend runs across the road and starts shouting and swearing at your new boyfriend who you really like? How would you feel? Yeah, very, very afraid. So, you can see just from that illustration, three different settings. Within one setting, we're saying, this is an exaggerated expression of anger, number one. You know, was it appropriate that the woman jumped out of the car and berated someone else about the way that they crossed the road. You see this all the time with road rage incidents. So someone sensed that their experience has been violated somehow in the driving. And actually very often there's been no legal violation, but there has been some discourtesy or some sort of outworking which is uncomfortable. And the counter-reaction is huge, often because there's a sense of potential loss at stake. So someone feels like they feel angry because they can see the potential for a disaster which didn't actually materialize. You could, have, you could have died and I could have been responsible because of the way you crossed the road. So actually, I'm not, I don't really care about you crossing the road. I care about the fact that you could have damaged my car and then you could have made me feel very uncomfortable because I could have run you down. So here's an inflated idea about anger. The second one is an appropriate expression of anger. There's been a, a violation, a sense of justice here. There's a, a morality about the anger. As, as you stop this assailant who's trying to take this victim away. But the third one is a completely inappropriate expression of anger. This is an expression of rage. It's about jealousy. It's about hatred. The, the, the ex-boyfriend uh, is raging at a man that he does not know because he believes that the property, the girl in the story, is still his. So he's got an inappropriate view of the relationship, he's got an inappropriate view of the girl, and he's got an inappropriate idea of how to outwork his own sense of disappointment and frustration. So, you guys get it, right? It's just how we experience this thing in context makes sense or validates the experience that we're having. The key thing is the anger is neutral. Like, the emotion is neutral. The, the emotion itself is being expressed. It's like a mule. The key thing is about the cognition. It's about the process of thinking and evaluating before the anger takes hold. If you like, the anger is an emotion itself. It's an expression. It's what we call a secondary emotion. So have a look about range, because range is really key here. When we're working in relationships, we're asking about what's appropriate anger. What we're not saying is uh, there shouldn't be any anger in this relationship. We talk about what makes something appropriate. So here you can see a range between calm, bothered, irritated, frustrated, angry, and then rage-filled. And I would say that, that there is quite a big gap between number four and number five. That actually, seriously angry is still a state of control. Seriously rage-filled is a state of, uh, is a demonstrate a lack of control. And if we were concerned in terms of 
safeguarding or well well-being, this is the stage that we often see things tip into physicality and obviously domestic violence. So when we hear the language of rage or when we hear testimony about rage, what I'd call an uncontrolled emotion, almost like my partner seemed to vaporize before my eyes and something else appeared, that's the stage where we need to start feeling uncomfortable about what's going on, maybe seek further advice. But but this this range demonstrates that in different settings we'll have different sorts of responses, but not everyone's the same. So anger as an emotion is accompanied by biological changes that support what we call escalation. So anger is a neutral emotion, but that emotion is supported by all sorts of responses within our endocrine system. So different hormones are injected into uh, your bloodstream to promote certain activities which are supportive of the same idea. And you can see there's an increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, adrenaline and noradrenaline. So all these things are happening in an instant. Have you noticed that when, if you have experienced road rage, or something close to road rage, maybe you describe it between number three and four on the Kensington High Road on the way out to town on a Friday night, you, you'll sense a, a sort of you know, a heat within you, your reactions are sharpened, you'll start stamping on the brake and stamping on the accelerator, and your husband or your wife will be saying, can you drive a bit more slowly or smoothly, please, because I'm feeling a bit sick right now. So your, your physicality changes as you respond to the emotion, and those things really combine. Equally, the response that you're seeing is part of what's, what we describe as the fight-or-flight experience. So at this point, the endocrine system kicks in and it prepares us for bigger works to do. So if you really are violated on the street late at night, the fight-or-flight response kicks in, releases a huge amount of adrenaline and noradrenaline, it increases your blood pressure so your body can be more efficient in moving quickly, and your heart rate increases to pump blood around your body more quickly to oxygenate your limbs in order that you can run quickly. You might also have a little accident because your body tries to evacuate itself of, of all its bodily fluids in order that you can run more quickly. And this incredible system, the uh, endocrine response, the fight-or-flight response, enables you to do superhuman things. And if you ever watch any of those Police 99 videos, whenever they show a fight on CCTV, you'll see two people squaring up to one another, looking very angry. But looking very angry isn't a demonstration of an emotion within, it's a demonstration of the supportive symptoms without. So you'll often see people clenching their fists or rubbing their fists together by their side, standing tall, twitching quite a lot and getting ready. And you almost sense this is the point at which the first punch is going to be thrown. So what you're not seeing is an emotion. Who can see anger? It's like seeing the wind. You can see what it does, but you can't see it. It is within. So what we have to do is understand, if you like, how anger is escalating in relationships. And I wonder how anger escalates in your relationships. I had a funny incident on the way back from Focus, which had been a very holy week uh, for me and my wife. We'd sense really close to the Lord, and you know, I'd had a lot of really good prayer times at Focus, and really enjoyed my time there. And on the way back around the M25, towing a caravan, we got stuck in terrible traffic. My children aren't particularly good in the car. They often start fighting and irritating one another on the back seat. That makes me feel very angry. And I could feel the uh, movement between calm, bothered, and irritated seems to fly by in a second, and I got to frustrated to angry pretty quickly. And then my daughter said, I really need to use the toilet, Daddy. So I said, well, okay, well, we'll pull off the service station here, and everyone go to the loo, and we'll, we'll kind of reset the clock, and I'll calm down. 
So we took everyone to the toilet in Cheveley Services or somewhere on the south of the M25. And, and what's it called? Does anyone know what it's called? I got the wrong place. So Cob Cobham, is it? Oh, maybe it was Cobham Services. So we pulled off with our caravan and we parked at the bottom left-hand corner of the car park, used the to toilet, came back out again. But then when we came back out again, we realized that an almighty traffic jam had formed within the car park itself. The same one. So I got back into the car feeling quite calm at that stage, but then soon very, very irritated as my children became more and more angry with one another about the fact that we haven't left the service station yet. An hour and 20 minutes later, we still hadn't left the service station. And, and I got so irritated, I was on the bumper of someone who pulled in front of me, kind of against the flow of traffic, and sort of tried to do a divert around uh, the petrol station. And, and I tried to brake quickly, but unfortunately with a caravan behind me, it drove me forward and I slammed into the back of this woman's car in the service station, in the garage, you know, in the, in, in, in the rest stop. So I slammed into her car and we were only doing about three miles an hour anyway, if that. So I had to get out and she told me I was a beeping, beeping idiot. And, um, you know, and I felt even more upset and angry and frustrated, you know, and finally we made it out. It took us, I think, seven and a half hours and to get home from focus. But, you know, it's amazing how the physiological and escalative support structures kick in to reinforce an emotion you feel within you. So I want to give you a break from my dialogue for a moment and ask what happens to you. This is a scene from Sparta from 300. And, um, and I want you to just spend a moment with a, with a, with a partner, if you're here with a partner or with a trusted friend, if you're, if you're here alone, just to describe maybe some of the things that you notice about yourself in terms of escalation when you feel angry. Are you like a gas oven? You get hot very quickly, but then you get cold very quickly. Or you are like an electric oven? You get hot very slowly, but when you're hot, it takes you an awful long time to cool down. This is before those special pans, so just think about the old days with the electric ovens. And now, you know, think about how it looks for you. So let's take five-minute break, have a chance to just have a dialogue with some of those folk around you. What's it look like for you? Um, John and... Um, John, do you, want to go, do you guys want to go... Uh, Okay, we're going to come back together again, just before anyone has a row. <laughs> Feel the just, just in a, in in a, just in a safe and just kind of in relatively innocuous way. Those people who take quite a long time to get angry, can they put a show of hands? Should be about half. Okay, and those people who find themselves, who get very angry very quickly, but find the cool down quite quickly as well. Excellent. Great. That's, um, you can do both. You can do both. I think. Yeah, I, I'm going to talk a bit later about anger being an additive emotion and that idea that psychological principle is that anger is like an emotion that sits in a bucket with holes in it that actually it's constantly draining through. But when you experience it in an additive emotion, there's some anger latent in the bucket that's still drying out, and then you pour more in, and you pour more in, and you pour more in, and you pour more in. Ultimately, even though it's draining through, it will go over the sides, ultimately. It's interesting like that. It kind of builds uh, in a cycle. I would, 
you know, it's interesting, as, an, as a concept, there are those people for whom they, are, they have a greater propensity towards flash pan anger. Those people have more social control in certain settings that means it takes them a long time to get angry because of what we call the inhibitors. So those things that make it socially uh, inappropriate to demonstrate anger at a particular time. And we're going to talk about some theory now. Hopefully this is, I hope you don't find this too boring. Do shout it. I can move quickly if it's, but I hope this is sort of, this kind of gets you to think about that. Ah, yeah, I get this. So, um, so we're going to talk about a few relationship and anger theories. And, and I like some of these theories because, again, I, I don't have a single discipline of psychological work that I, that I, well, there's some I like and there's some I don't really like, but I like the whole spread of concept because I often find, as you say, that there's times when these things seem to work and sometimes they just don't. And depending on what sort of couple you're supporting, you'll find that some things you're like, oh yeah, I can really see that now, and another schema might not work with them. So the first one is what we call displacement theory. This is about suppression. Um, there are a few ills in the psychological world, and um, denial, uh, repression, and suppression are the three kind of core ills when it comes to the emotional expressions that we have or how we deal with our emotions. So this idea is that we collect frustrations in settings where it's unsafe to express anger, and having bottled them up and suppressed them through the day, we then release the sum of these emotions on an unsuspecting partner over a trivial matter. It sounds very complex, doesn't it? We're all laughing because we know exactly what that means. That is, you've just come home from work and you have had a bad day at work, darling. And now you're having a go at me because I haven't done the tax like form that I told you I was going to do today. But I've been rushed off my feet doing all sorts of other things. Now that's become the biggest thing in the world for you. And a lot of the difficulty we have in couple counselling is sifting out this idea of justification and lack of justification. The thing about suppression is many people don't have the emotional presence of mind to know that they're collecting frustrations throughout the day. So they believe in their minds that they're reacting within the sphere of justification. No, we have to do the tax. I told we had to do it. I'm under pressure to get my tax return in and you just aren't listening. So the escalation takes place because the person is unable to acknowledge that they've just had a bad day. And sometimes partners are the best person in the world to read the signs and say, just tell me what happened today. What have been the frustrations? Unfortunately, they very often react rather than inquire. So they often say, how dare you come back here and ask me for that tax return when you're being such a nightmare and terrible to live with and you come home grumpy from work every day. You always do that. And then suddenly there's the defensive response. I never do that. How dare you? I work hard for our money to keep everyone in good clothes and fodder and now you're disrespecting me. And then everyone goes off in a huff. So the idea of suppression and displacement is principally that we are receiving a selection of frustrations throughout the day from other sources. We're collecting them, but actually we're unable to express them. And then we release them because of this idea of the of anger being an additional emotion. This, I'm adding up the sum of my frustrations until I get to the point at which I'm exploding and I'm releasing them all out onto you. Who, who, who could just, who, who finds this a common experience for them in their, in their life? A few people. Jim, would you say a few things that for you add up? What? Yeah, it, it, 
brilliant thank you just escalates like like that doesn't it and you know for those i think we all most of us have got children here i think and um you know this can be our great frustration as parents too is actually that we we wound those people who are innocent and yet we don't appropriately demonstrate our frustration with those people who are worthy of our dem of our demonstration of disapproval so you could find yourself in the workplace dealing with someone who's completely unscrupulous and is trying to you know fleece you for money and you can be as polite as pie to them just ask them out for a drink buy them a cup of tea you know thank them for their business and underneath you're thinking how dare you are trying to rob me and then you go home to your five-year-old child who's had a tough day at work and start shouting at them because they're messing around at the dinner table you're thinking who deserves your ire here but that's the difficulty that we have with expressing anger because particularly as brits many of us have this terrible disconnection because socially it's perceived to be in inappropriate to be angry and in the business context many people fear that they discredit their own skills if they demonstrate anger in the workplace so they don't want to be known as a hothead or an emotionally reactive person so they play a poker face throughout the day but then come home and then they begin to express what they really like uh, there and when we're working with younger couples it's really really key that we recognize that many of the younger couples that we're working with haven't had a safe outlet for their anger and therefore they've been using different forms of play to release their anger in a way that they perceive to be safe so particularly young men you'll notice when they get really angry young men that i certainly work with who don't necessarily attend church tend to express their anger on a friday night they go out they drink because they're angry they often court because they're angry they often play sport because they're angry and they often take extreme risks because they're angry now they don't do all those things because they're just angry but when they express those things negatively they often express them because they're releasing a suppressed frustration if you work with any of the city guys you'll know that the frustrations that they feel in the marketplace often get drunk down the drain uh, that night in order they can have a big blowout they call it blowout and then on saturday it's like recovery time and then you kind of feel calm for the rest of the week now if you take away the big blowout and you put a young woman in their place and then a sophisticated meal on a friday night you get a different sort of reaction so the suppression and the release in this particular context morph into a new sort of interaction that they don't understand so where they've had days out with the boys wrestling in the woods you know doing all these things to release their anger they're suddenly shopping in Karen Millen and having a nice coffee in some Pret-a-Manger and they're wondering why the relationship's in trouble and equally you know the way that I'm not stereotyping the way some of the young women are expressing their anger you know with girls nights out and lots of talking and quite a lot of haranguing of different people they don't like suddenly they've got this man who wants to engage them in romantic conversation thinking I'm furious you know and he wants my attention how's this going to work so we have to help people translate their experience from the big blowout idea into a new sort of emotional dialogue which is obviously mature but still reflects the fact that people have anger to deal with right let's move on to a different theory sorry yeah jump yeah it was impressed upon you the idea of the of, of the grandiose change for people when it comes to these this anger suppression when they get married 
for the outlets for the expression of their anger or what they perceive to be healthy release for their anger suddenly change. So really, it, it's, it's trying to identify how they now manage an emotion which they have previously not managed and why the setting is not necessarily supportive for the way that they manage the emotion. And, and, I, and I think, you know, if, you, if we're going to parody gender types, you can see why there are issues in the early stages with expressing frustration and anger and why conflict is so unsafe. Because it's like, what do I do with now what I feel when previously I did seem to feel this? But of course I did feel it, I just expressed it in a way that I was unwittingly expressing it. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to emotional substitution theory, which isn't massively far away, but this is an idea that says that anger is a secondary emotion that is used to defend against the presence of a primary emotion like shame, vulnerability, or rejection. Being angry is an avoidant tactic that keeps us from having to concede how we really feel, especially if the source of rejection is the relational partner. Now, this sounds complicated, but it's not complicated. This is the idea that actually anger is an amazing smokescreen. If we really don't want to uh, express how we really feel about a particular thing, the best thing to do is get really angry really quickly. Because as a secondary emotion, we've got the control to bah! Suddenly, it's like, oh, you're just really angry. Well, no, actually, I'm just really vulnerable, but I don't want you to see that I'm really vulnerable. So I'm just going to be really angry instead. So this idea of emotional substitution is actually asking the question about what's really going on here. Why are you so angry? And what are you trying to express? We often get foxed by this because people think about anger as a primary emotion. They think it's the first thing that's happening. And therefore, they believe that they're dealing with a problem, which is an anger problem. When actually they're not dealing with an anger problem at all, they're actually dealing with an issue around vulnerability or shame. So often you'll find this in the early stages of marriage too, when one partner feels um, particularly sensitive about an issue. When the other partner treads on that issue or touches on that issue, the reaction they automatically get is anger. Because the person who is angry feels that it's unacceptable to demonstrate what's really going on. They don't feel that that's appropriate. And you see this also with some older couples where they have very clear gender roles. And again, you often, you might find that the man is, when he is emotional and maybe even on the point of tears, if he feels unable to express the emotion of sadness or loss easily or comfortably, he will instead become angry and hostile because it's a defense against what he really feels inside. So pressing on the emotional vulnerability actually doesn't get an emotional response, it gets an angry response. Um, just have a think about that for a moment. And I want you just to kind of think in your mind about what sorts of emotions might someone be afraid of demonstrating in relationship and why? What sort of emotions, I mean obviously there's a kind of lead here, but what sort of emotions do you think elicit an angry response? Why, why would someone use anger as a way of screening off some of their more um, honest emotions? Yeah, so it's a defense mechanism to you. What, what would lead someone? Great. So the emotion, the primary emotion there, Michael, would be shame. So someone feels shame, and actually their partner's challenge doesn't necessarily elicit the reaction on the basis of what they know they should or shouldn't be doing. 
but the fact that they feel bad in themselves that they're doing something they know that is disapproved of by their partner. And this is really difficult where the emotional dialogue, so it's a bit buzzy, isn't it, that one? Um, it's really difficult where the emotional dialogue cu comes in because a partner's trying to assist their husband, for example, or their wife, that, drink, that the drinking is wrong. They know, though, that the drinking is wrong. So the challenge just merely reinforces what they know about themselves or what they believe about themselves, which is that they're a failure in the family. So the biggest statement that's being made is actually you're a failure and I'm going to heap shame on you. But that's not the intention of the partner, but that's what's interpreted by the one who's feeling angry at that time. This is a really good example. Other, other ideas, yeah. Ah, that's a really, really helpful point. Thank you. The idea about emotional readiness is a really, really important one. If you think about anger as a um, blocking emotion, attempts to use anger to create a time frame whereby you might come to terms with something that's particularly painful for you, you, you can then use anger. Obviously, subconsciously, you're using anger as a way of saying, actually, I'm not ready to discuss this with you. So you see this quite a lot in relationships. I'm not talking to you about this. Actually, it's saying, I'm not talking to you about this now on your terms. I want to go away, work this out. And when I'm ready to talk to you about this on my terms, I will. So anger can be a blocking emotion on the base of territory. And that's a helpful relationship you know, idea to the emotional substitution theory, that, that anger defends emotional territory, which is too sensitive to involve another person in. And that, that has important implications, doesn't it, for marriage? Because what we're saying is actually, what emotional territory shouldn't, shouldn't we be sharing in? But of course, what we're hoping that people will learn to do is to begin to trust their partner and bring them in fully to their emotional territory and, and treat one another gently within the sensitivities of that emotional territory. But that's, that's a lifelong journey, and many of us here will still know that there are struggles for us in inviting our partners into our own deepest vulnerabilities and saying it's okay for you to be here more than that, it's okay for you to speak into this area of my life. So anger can be a first point reaction to emotions that we're really feeling but are unable to express, unwilling to express, or ashamed in some way of expressing. The key point with this one about emotional substitution is, is for you as senior marriage support couples, asking the bigger question about what's really going on in your relationship. What, what do you... What are, you, what are you seeking to hold back by being angry? Or what do you feel that your partner is pressing upon when they say this particular thing? What, the best way to um, sense this or to elicit this in your support work is to find what cycles or narratives of particular behavior. Whenever there's a cycle, whenever there's a storyboard uh, or what you call a life narrative or a life script that keeps on coming round, where anger's concerned, there's nearly always something else that is just being pressed every time. You do this, and then you always react so angrily. Why does he always react so angrily to this particular thing? And people will say that to you, and whenever they say that they're not using the classic you always or you never, sometimes it just happens that they do always do it. If they do always do it, the thing is it's not anger. Something is being pressed. Why do you always react so angrily when I say anything about your mum? Well... I don't like you saying anything about my mum because actually I'm very defensive of my mum because stuff went on in my family when I was a kid that made me feel like I needed to defend my mum and I don't want you attacking 
my mum makes me feel angry, like it made me feel angry when my dad was attacking my mum. So you don't know what you're touching on, but those cycles are deeply entrenched and they create points of real pain for couples because one couple feels frozen out because they're unable to discern or, or describe or translate the emotional story that's being shown to them. And that's particularly true with these younger couples. Older couples tend to go, oh, I, can, I see what's going on here. I know this territory. And many of them will say, I don't go, I don't, we don't talk about X because actually it elicits this response because this is territory that I'm not welcomed into. So emotional substitution is an important one to, to hold onto. The third one, this is the third one, so don't worry, there aren't any more after this. Um, there are more, but I'm just going to show these three. Is this idea of layered reactions. And um, this is archetypal in its kind of um, origin. This is the idea that, that relationships often provoke strong anger because behavior activates a substrate of core beliefs or familial archetypes. Hence, couples in conflict often refer to these archetypes in conflict, you sound just like my mother or your mother. Okay? Now, <clears throat> this again sounds like a complex sort of theory. And most, complex, most theories are made to sound complex because it credits people. But actually, they're generally just simple observations about human behaviors. Here we have the idea that, that a substrate of core beliefs that someone's car someone carries are hidden beneath uh, particular anger or, or, or outworkings of anger. Some of this is defense, but some of it is slightly more complex than that in terms of it's the interactions of different archetypes or character types within a person that are being activated at the time. So this idea of you always sound just like your mother or you will sound like your father or you sound like someone else when you particularly get into this mode often demonstrates that this sort of substrate of core beliefs at the center of a person who that aren't clear and are constantly reacting in a very strong and sometimes hostile way but the partner is completely in the dark about why this is the case. So they are saying things like I just don't understand why you react like this. Have you, have you heard that? Have you heard couples come to you and say that? I just don't understand why you're reacting like this. Well, there's a very good reason why they're not understanding. It's because the story behind the anger is a story that the new partner has no part in. It's a part of their history which they're just not involved with. Um, Carl Gustav Jung, who's the sort of uh, psychological originator of this kind of theory, and I'm only going to give it to you very easily here, is this idea that actually the inner self, or what he describes as the inner child, is at the very center of our personal worlds. And then within uh, what's called the superego is this um, collection of ideas or, or archetypes. The shadow, the animus, the anima, um, the um, mother and father types. This isn't particularly helpful, but this is the idea that actually there's also a collective voice here, the unconscious or the boarding school. So the voices of all the different cultural agents, if you like, in a person's upbringing are all present within their subconscious uh, experience within what's called the superego. And then really, Jung, rather than describing the ego like that's not particularly helpful, it's the idea that the bigger circle around the outside is the ego. And that's where anger is released because of a deeper dialogue between the inner child and the different archetypes or characters within uh, the superego, the larger voice inside a person's mind. Now, sounds quite complicated, but if we simplify it for a minute in relationship, 
where we have problems in relationship, where we're lots of anger is expressed, there's often a high level of conflict between the inner child or the innate self of a person and then the voices of historic characters that ring strongly in their minds. So you have this um, often when you're helping couples who are having sexual difficulties in their relationship. Because actually what's happening is that the inner child or the inner self at the core is having a wrestle with uh, the maternal or paternal archetypes within their own mind that are saying sex is dirty and prohibited and you mustn't have sex because sex is bad and potentially evil. And they've also invoked the voice of the church which is also swooping around in here too which has told them for 30 years that they mustn't have sex. It's absolutely terrible outside of wedlock and now they're trying to get their head around the idea that actually now on a rational level and on a legal level they are married to someone which suddenly reverts all of that story and now they're in fact encouraged to have sex and the church is saying what's wrong with your sex life why on earth aren't you having sex and um and this person is 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 demonstrating fury rage at their partner because they're going i really just don't fancy you and i'm not getting turned on by you and i'm just not enjoying our sex life and I don't want to have, you always want to have sex with me and I don't want to have sex. What they're actually doing is they're displacing their rage because a deeper argument is taking place within their minds between the inner child who's saying, I think it's okay for me now to have sex and these harsh superego voices that are saying, no, you mustn't have sex. It's terrible. It's evil. It's awful. You mustn't do it. Okay. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, it's a simple concept, but if you think about the idea of the internal narrative in your mind, you're having one right now as you're thinking about these concepts. You're thinking, yeah, I think I get what Will's saying. If I was going to explain it, I'd do it like this. I think that might be a bit better. Um, but, you're, but what you're hearing in your head is a conversation between the consecutive parts of you. But these are different voices. They're not voices in a, in a medicalized sense. These are voices within your head. They're part of a narrative. And some of those voices attach themselves to different aspects of who you are and what you've received as a person. So when we're dealing with anger, we're often dealing with people's inner concepts. We're de dealing with the interreaction between the inner child, their innate self, and some of these imbibed voices. And for you working particularly in the Christian world, or us collectively working in the Christian world, being aware of some of those voices which are deeply entrenched in very religious people, we have to pick apart some of the strong reactions that we're having. Equally, you often see this worked out through the uh, mother-in-law, father-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship, which we all laugh about. But we can actually say, what's actually going on here? What's actually going on is there's a conversation between uh, the innate self and the parental archetype that's understood within the person's own world. And now they've got a weird imposter in their world. It's a new maternal archetype or a new paternal archetype, but who doesn't uh, express themselves within the context of the language that they understand. So this is like speaking French, knowing French, and then meeting someone else who claims to be French but speaks a language that you don't understand. So you feel frustrated with them because they're an imposter. They're not really French, but they're saying that they're French. They say that they're speaking French, but they're just not speaking your brand of French. That causes huge rage. Because, we're, we, because our world becomes unsafe. You're saying, well, hold on a minute. Your, your mum's a disaster. I, I hate your mum. Why, why do you hate my mum? Well, she's just such an idiot. Well, why is she an idiot? 
She's my mum. I love her. But she just, nothing she does makes sense to me. But, but why doesn't it make, it makes sense to me. Well, yes, it does make sense to you because what's going on in here between this part and this part is what you've learned from this woman when you were born. But what's going on between this part and this part in you relates to a completely different person and a completely different language. And in that way, we have to navigate a four-way conversation. And that's very difficult. But that's a, a strong reason why anger erupts between families, because of the, the confusion between these two, these, this inner relationship or this inner family and this outer family. So that's, that's the idea of inner conflict. Is that, is that at all helpful? Yeah, no one's falling to sleep quite yet. Is it? Okay. <laughs> now, the hope is, of course, that you guys can use some of what you're learning in these conceptual uh, ideas with, and what, what I want to put a disclaimer on here is I don't recommend that in any session with any of the married couples, you go, oh, there's a perfect concept here. There's a real theory I know that explains everything that's going on in your relationship right now. And I just encourage you just to, to, to let what you know now, sort of, or if you didn't know already, just let that sit in you, but not necessarily pull the blinds on everyone you meet with a kind of psychological theory. That's not really going to help them. But what we have to do is identify your responses. You know, let's personalize this again. With your partner or with a friend here, try to identify some different conflicts in which these theories are evident. Try to identify the escalation factors at play in the conflicts. Maybe the easiest thing to do is ask you, identify just one conflict that you can remember. Uh, maybe a recent one, might be one that happened today, might be one that happened on the weekend. Just one conflict. And just let's take three or four minutes Maybe one of you just want to say, well, I was in a conflict. I, you know, I recognized that actually what was going on here was a deeper conversation within me or was some frustrations during the week or I was actually uh, trying to dif you know, displace an emotion that I didn't want to express. So maybe just in twos or threes, maybe one person willing to just describe something um, amongst yourselves. Okay, I think we'd better come back together. I'm loath to interrupt you, but... No. Okay. I hope this... I can see this is sparking subsequent conversations. I think I need to get you back together just because time is... Time is slightly against us. I'd, if you're having an important conversation with your partner, I just really encourage you to continue those at home. You know, to take the take to take the conversation further. But we, we've got a few more things to get through before the end. And remember, we're finishing quarter past nine for a little bit of time prep before we go home. So I just want to get through a few few ideas as we we move into resolution stage, really, because I don't want to just leave you with an idea about what might be going on. How do we move forward through this? Well, one of the key things we want to try and do is reduce the causes for escalation. Because what we want to say is anger is good, anger is healthy. A, co a marriage that's without any conflict normally means that one or other partner is being steamrolled. And that's not a good relationship. What we want is a, is, a, is a relationship which is balanced. And balance brings conflict because two equal powers opposing one another result in action. They result in conflict or pressure or frustration. And that's helpful and healthy if it's dealt with in an appropriate way. 
But conflict is part of a, he a healthy part of marriage. Anger is a necessary emotion. It's a secondary emotion that demonstrates the conflict that's being generated. But escalation moves conflict from ang uh, and, and anger from health to ill health. You could say escalation moves anger into rage. And here are a few areas in which we can find uh, healthy anger being escalated. And when you're working with couples, the key factors to start working on initially are the escalation factors. What moved this forward? The first one is provocation. So actually, in an attempt to provocate because of someone's own latent rage, they stir up the hornet's nest for a counter-reaction. So in this argument, one partner comes home angry, they demonstrate a small level of anger, and the other person takes that clue as the opportunity for them to release all of the frustrations that they felt in the day and feel fully justified. So whoever started the argument ultimately is going to take the pain. So you come home angry because you've had a difficult drive home. You, you act slightly frustrated. Oh, I can't believe I had such a bad drive home. And then, then your partner at home goes, how dare you come in here like that? I, you don't know what I've been through today. Let me tell you every 10,000 terrible things that happened to me. You come in here and you storm around like a bull in a china shop and you don't think about me and you don't listen to my life and you don't care about me, etc., etc., etc. Now, what we have here is really provocation. And that leads to the counter-reaction. Why on earth do I even bother coming home to this? This is a disgrace. You've got no respect for me. And so the argument actually works through a scale of provocation on the basis of the fact that there's some sort of relief being gleaned from these conversations. Now, the relief is really an expression of the rage that someone wants to get out. But by getting it out, there's no remedy. So that's what's happening. And through that escalation, provocation, there's no grace, there's no compassion. And that's where things get really out of hand. And sometimes, obviously, there's, there's points at which this becomes really unsafe. The second one is punishment. So the cause of escalation is often punishment. So this, the person who is uh, on the receiving end of the partner's anger or feels that they are, then actually punish them for that anger, which only fuels the flames further. Well, it sounds to me like you deserve it. You know, it sounds to me like, uh, like they were fully justified in doing you over in that deal at work, darling, or looks like, looks like the, you know, the kids are total angels. I don't know what's wrong with your parenting style. You know, things like this, this idea that actually I'm going to punish you for being angry. And some of those are, 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 are much more subtle punishments. Like I'm just going to withdraw from you completely. I'm going to punish you with my silence. Uh, or I'm just going to make snide remarks. Um, or I'm going to do down your personality. And I'm doing this in quite a subtle way because I really I want to punish you. Now, some people can punish with active anger by basically coming home rage-filled. But very often the punishments are actually a counter-reaction to someone's anger. The third one is the idea of a hidden agenda. Actually, uh, you know, I'm, I, I've got something else on my mind here. I've got a hidden agenda. And sometimes there's manipulation in relationships through rage. So I want something from you. I'm going to rage at you about something else. And then uh, we're going to have a big battle. And in the makeup phase, I'm really going to get what I want. And you know, it sounds very, very manipulative. And it is manipulative, but often it's very unconscious. So some people use the catastrophe or they use the power or the escalation of the argument and of the anger to then receive what they really hoped for at the end. And sometimes people do a lot of bargaining. You have to be really careful about what's going on within some relationships because there's an awful lot of bargaining going on. I really want that holiday. I can't believe that you're not letting me go to Australia for a month. You know, we really need this. 
It's really important for my family. Okay, I'll settle for two weeks in the Maldives. So there's like you know, there's overexpression of the anger in order to find the bargain that's a 50-50 place. But actually what we want to say as Christian leaders is actually there's no place for that sort of bargaining in relationship. And actually there's not a place for manipulation in relationship. Sooner or later your partner is going to find that out, they're going to see it for what it is, and they're going to lose trust because of what you're trying to do. There's the need to win. You often see this in escalation. One person knows that they're wrong, but they refuse flatly to back down or to concede that they were wrong. And, and this is a real shame in conflict because actually the need to win is just a defense of the ego. It's a sense that like, I need to be right all the time. Well, you lose all credibility if you need to be right, but you know that you're wrong. And we have to help, again, couples to recognize where they might have, when they might be fiercely competitive. And many couples we see today, particularly coming from the working world, are fiercely competitive. And the need to win is really powerful within them. It's trained in them in school, it's celebrated within the workplace, and now suddenly we want them to be in a loving relationship and not want the need to win. And then, sorry, yeah. Yeah, sure. So it's in, this, in a sense, you could say, Dan, that the, the need to win for you was the need to win. It was a, still a bigger defense of the ego. So it was like the need to win on all fronts in order that you don't lose the ultimate game, which is the game of marriage. And I'd say, actually, what you've just described is, again, really common in new marriage. That actually, for the first year, you have total superhero fabrication taking place. And then there's a gradual rev revelation of the real people. And then there's often huge disappointment which often leads to quite a lot of expressions of anger. Uh, so we've got the need to win, we've got the insecurity and fear of vulnerability, which again are part of that idea that actually I refuse to be vulnerable, I refuse to demonstrate my insecurities to you, so I'm going to defend myself with anger. And then there's just inexpression. There's just an, an unwillingness to express anything other than anger because that's the only thing that's been modeled. Now those things are a lot more complicated than I've just expressed them to be, but as you're working with relationships, spotting areas for escalation and seeking de-escalation is a really good way of helping bring objectivity to relationship. What we're looking for here, friends, is to seek assertion, not aggression. What we want is couples to be assertive towards one another. Now, assertive is helpful, it's valuable, it's holding, it's supportive, it's realistic. We're looking for people to develop assertive skills in conflict, and they involve anger, but there's a difference between aggression and assertion. You can be loving and assertive, but you, it's hard to be loving and aggressive. And what we want is that we want to see intimidation removed from relationships. And what we want to see is grace, gentleness, and confidence being restored. And that doesn't mean weakness. Grace isn't just rolling over and going, oh, whatever you want, darling. Grace is actually saying, I don't think this is right for our family or right for you. And I'm willing to hold the line, even though I know I'm facing a disappointment. I'm going to be assertive, but I'm not going to be aggressive. I'm not going to damage your personality because I'm going to berate you for being such an idiot for wanting these things. So that's what we're looking for, the health of assertion and not aggression. It, it, this is a helpful um, just diagram here, the anger iceberg, that actually what we see, if, you look, if you're doing kind of work with any of our couples, if you're seeing a lot of anger, just like you saw with the, with the ego type, try and work out what you're looking for under the waterline. What's going on under the waterline? Is there, is there fear, rejection, frustration? hurt or humiliation. Very often, anger is just a secondary emotion that's a diagnostic or an indicator of everything else that's actually going on. And through appropriate questioning, 
and training your couples to ask the right sort of questions. How do you really feel behind the anger? You know, what provoked this? What brought this up the first time? Why has this become a pattern for you? What, what do you feel afraid of in terms of expressing what you really want? And those sort of questions can lead to the unmasking of anger and the revelation of what's really happening beneath the surface. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'll list the questions. Yeah, absolutely. I'll list some questions for you. So, anger in retaining rage, anger in marriage can be maintained or blocked through various punishing and defensive behaviors. We talked about some of these before, but these are also angry behaviors. Silence or sulky moods, <coughs> that's a, an anger. It's a very um, expressive sort of anger. It's just a different sort of looking anger. Um, they're playing the victim, these sort of, oh, you're always having a go at me. That's basically, that's very angry. That's just saying, don't don't assert your will on me. I'm not willing to take it. Uh, the refusal to acknowledge the issue. I'm not even talking about this. This is a non-issue. Has anyone heard, have you heard that? A non. What is a non-issue? There's no such thing as a non-issue. It's an oxymoron. And if it's being raised, it's an issue. There's no. There are no non-issues in marriage. The uh, withdrawal of sexual or physical contact. This is a, again an extremely angry behaviour. It's a punishing behaviour. I'm not having sex with you. I'm not going to touch you. You make me sick. It's incredibly angry. It's incredibly destructive. It's incredibly painful. And then over-emotionalism, weeping, weeping, because you're trying to lead me in a direction that I don't want to go. I can't believe I feel, you know, you're just, you always run roughshod over me and my will. You don't care about me. And I'm going to start weeping now. Then your anger's going to dissipate. And then suddenly you're going to be doing exactly what I want you to do. So these are all angry and defensive expressions in relationship. They don't always have to be, but these are expressions in countermand to anger or anger in themselves. So how do you respond? We tend to have a defensive game plan, discuss with your partner, which you tend to fall into. We haven't got time to do that now, but you might want to try that at home. Try and avoid being defensive. And these are helpful rules of engagement that you can encourage couples to use too. Use I statements, talk respectfully. A and B may call a timeout, so you can say, can you just give me a few minutes to think about this? And if the other party agrees, you know, just res respect that. So encouraging or fostering conversation, which is more subjective, more self-orientated, but offering a more objective overview. Look, we need to do this right now. We need to break these conversations down. Here are some myths that we need to break away from. Everyone has the same level of anger. There's some biblical verses. You can look them up. They will support this kind of idea. There are hotheads. Some people are more snappy or more anger-orientated, and some people are more calm and passive. Now, there's a color scheme which is quite helpful. I think John uses that. You know, We talk about some people being red, some people are blues, some people are yellows. Different personality styles do have different anger responses. Some of us are more suppressed and held in than others. Some of us are more Italian and you know, more verbose. Um, you know, it depends on our background and our experiences and all sorts of aspects of personality but there is a range of expression and for some people if you come to my family which is generally Dutch and you have dinner in my family an argument is normative a good meal comes with a good argument that's a celebration of family life right there especially a theological debate about some finer point of theology that no one really cares about but everyone wants to shout loudly about and when my wife who comes from a very held in family joined my family she, she just didn't know what on earth was going on she couldn't believe there's this huge amount of emotional expression around the dining table. 
It was positively offensive to her. And then I went to eat at her dining table where everyone's unbelievably polite, even though they know each other from birth. And there's me sort of just about to start up with, what do you think about this particular piece of politics? Come on, let's have a really big row about it. Uh, met with a sort of icy stare. So, you know, the reality is that different families and different personal experiences lead to different sort of expressions. A big mistake is the idea that if you get let rip, you get well. No one gets well from expressing, over-expressing anger. Expressing anger appropriately is fine. But the idea that if you just have some massive scrap, it will all be done, it's actually rubbish. What we do find psychologically is true that the more, the more you engage in escalate anger, the more you will engage in escalate in anger. There is no end point. Punching cushions is not good for you. Actually, what it demonstrates, punching cushions actually leads to further physical reaction. People who start off by punching cushions end up punching people. You know, if you get used to expressing anger in a physical and violent way against a neutral target, ultimately you escalate into using physical violence against a physical target. So you need to think about that. It's not a good idea. A big row is better than lots of small skirmishes is also a lie. What it tells you is that, there, that there's a huge amount of suppression and then there's an ultimate explosion when everything that's been pushed down is all erupting all at one time. I personally believe, and this is a subjective experience, that lots of small skirmishes are relatively healthy. Small skirmishes about relatively little. Let's people express how they're feeling, deal with their frustration as it's, as it's, as it's felt, and then move on. Who here, I bet all of you say, we have arguments about the most ridiculous things. We have had arguments about whether I've put folded ironed boxer shorts, scrunched them up and put them in my boxer shorts drawer. We had a row about that for about an hour. You know, you know, who rows about, who gets their boxer shorts ironed anyway? Not, not my wife, by the way, who ironed those boxer shorts, but you know, who, who, who irons their boxer shorts and who cares whether they're scrunched up or not? My wife does and I don't. It's a small row about an inconsequential thing, but at the time it was appropriate. So think about having lots of small skirmishes, and that isn't a, a measure of a bad marriage. It's a, it's a measure of an expressive marriage. That's okay. So don't worry about small skirmishes, but big rows aren't necessarily better. Anger is definitely not a sin. Remember Ephesians 4, 6, in your anger, do not sin. The argument of being honest is more important than being loving. It's one that comes up all the time today. I'm just being honest is one of the most unpleasant things that I ever hear. I'm just being honest. As if by brutalizing someone's personality is a kind and loving thing to do because it's true. Well, it's only true for that moment when you're feeling very angry. It's not true in real terms, so people shouldn't do it. Being loving is much more important than being honest in those two categories. Not that I'm saying being dishonest is a good thing. What I'm saying is in our anger and frustration, what we believe to be true very often isn't true. Because anger makes us escalate what we believe to be true. You always do this to me. Is that really true? No, not at all. But I'm going to say it now because it feels right. And then the idea that forgiveness is an instant remedy is also a falsehood, which we've got to be really careful about peddling as Christians to young Christian couples. Forgiveness takes time. It's a journey. And actually, we don't automatically feel great. It takes time to recover. Thanks, Celia. couple of final things. De-escalation and healthy anger. Assertion is better than aggression. Deflate the mythology of you always and you never. Don't make demands or bargains. Stick to the present and to the facts. This is what's happening now. It's not a historic experience. Listen carefully and feedback to check that you're hearing things right. 90% of escalating arguments have happened because of poor communication. Because people weren't listening to what was actually being said. 
Make a plan for further reflection and action. Darling, this is really important. And you know what? Tomorrow, we're going to go for a walk and we're going to talk this through again just to be sure that we've dealt with a particular issue. Valuable, sensitive, thought through, time orientated. I like this pair conflict idea. Pair. Paraphrase the facts, encourage the other person to talk, pay attention and reflect your feelings. Simple one. You can just use pair. Paraphrase the facts, encourage the other person to talk, pay attention and reflect feelings. We could talk about sex and anger a lot. <clears throat> Oscar Wilde said that everything is about sex, apart from sex, which is about power. Um, I don't think he was entirely right. But there's, there's a lot to discuss about that. But the verse that we saw from Ephesians, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, I think, for me, has always been an indication that actually the marital bed is an important place where we say goodbye to anger, but also our anger is expressed sometimes through our sexual relationship. And I think that's wholly appropriate. I think people who say oh, oh, there's never any anger or there's never any assertion expressed through our sex life, I think, hasn't worked out the joy of nonverbal communication. And sometimes some of the best reconciliation happens in physical relationship. It doesn't mean that we're using sex as any form of punishment. We're not using sex as some negative tool. But sometimes the best sex that people describe as makeup sex is not sex that's being made up, if you like, once all of the anger's dissipated. It's merely an expression of the en energy and the passion and the fire within a couple. That's okay. So just things to think about there. I'm not going to go into them now. But final, um, final questions. This is my last slide, Silla. Then we're going to pray. How do you help couples? So key questions for you to use in the weeks ahead. Are you taking sides is the first question I'd ask. Whenever you hear an anger story, you nearly always take sides and nearly always take sides of who you perceive to be the victim. The person who's shouting a lot isn't always the aggressor. Just be careful that you're not taking sides when you're dealing with a relationship where there's conflict. Secondly, are you working at the surface? Are you talking a lot about controlling anger or turning off anger? Or are you asking some of the bigger questions about what's beneath the surface where anger's concerned? Are you aware of the escalation factors? What's going on in someone's world that's making them so frustrated that actually this anger is turning to rage and the family is now at risk? What are the fueling circumstances? What are the histories that the people are bringing to the table? You know, what are the counter-reactions that are being played out? Is your advice future-proof? By that I mean, are you saying that, that if you take these steps, you're never going to have a row again? Or are you preparing someone for 40 years of conflict, which is a much better way of approaching life? Is your advice future-proof? Are, are you relationship-focused or simply being pacifying? Remember, if anger is a good and healthy emotion, to express within a relationship? Are you pacifying anger, in which case you're just suppressing it? Or are you helping people to manage anger, in which case you're building them for a future that's going to be healthy and relational? And are you well-being conscious? And by that I mean, are you aware of the dangers of uncontrolled anger or rage? If you are, then you're always going to be thinking on your feet about anything that might indicate that a couple are in danger, in physical danger or in emotional danger to themselves or another person or to their children. And as people who are working in marriage, we just we don't want to be a, a, you know, oblivious to the reality that sometimes through anger and rage, physical violence and emotional abuse take place within uh, married relationships in the church as well as outside of it. 
So we need to be ready to listen carefully to the well-being of people involved and be willing to take steps and feedback appropriately to leadership if you're concerned about any family or couple that you're working with. Great, that's all we've got time for now. Um, I hope that's helpful. And um, there's a lot to take on. Oh, great, okay. Great, they're staying upstairs and they're going to pray up there. Great, John, sorry, did you have a... Yeah, I think so, yeah, sure. I mean, John's absolutely right. He's, he's key coach at uh, HB, if you don't know already, so we're sharing a lot of work together and kind of have the same sort of outlooks about training and coaching and helping people move forward for these things. And I think professionally, both of us would have concerns about creating uh, kind of miniature therapists who go around, you know, with a bit of information and, and kind of and, and start work on things which we're not qualified or skilled yet to do. That's not our intention here. What I'm hoping is that you receive this information and that you let it sit on you and let, let it kind of grow in your own vocabulary and maturity of, uh, in leadership. But how we help people without uncovering this stuff is really about getting to the roots of problems and beginning a dialogue. I think for you personally, there's lots of helpful guides with dealing with anger you know, in this sort of setting. There's a very good series called Overcoming, which I always recommend. If you're interested, if you want to make a referral on any issue, but anger is one of them, the Overcoming book series, readily available on uh, Amazon, and Overcoming Anger is a key book, a really, really helpful book, Overcoming Anger and Rage, and all those books in the Overcoming series use what we call cognitive behavioral principles. They're brilliant self-help books, and if you do come across someone who's struggling, then Overcoming is a brilliant series to use, so just remember Overcoming Anger, this could be a good book for you to read. Um, there was lots of material on our website on Mind and Soul about anger too, and I think it's helpful to do a first stop shop. Most people will just be helped by basic tools that you're offering them in terms of asking deeper questions, stopping the escalation, becoming more reasonable and rational, you know, trying to work in terms of objectivity. That will help most people. Where you sense that there is a deeper problem, I just recommend you make referral to myself or to Nikki, at least initially, and get further advice. Don't be afraid to ask. If you say, Will, I've got this couple, they're desperately angry, there's so much rage in the relationship, I'm not really sure what to do next. Can you give me some tips or advice? I've, absolutely, I'm right there. So that's why we've set up the structure that we've set up. So I don't want you to feel like you're flying in the wind. Okay? And um, as I say, let the material sit with you and hopefully help you and grow from there. Let's, let's just spend a moment. We've got just five or six minutes. Let's, let's pray. Maybe um, a few of us could pray if you're comfortable. Just to pray out loud, just very briefly. Uh, in this area of, of our, I don't really need a microphone. Let's, let's just spend a few minutes and just pray for couples uh, that we're dealing with here.